again, welcome. If you've walked into the room since we started tonight, I'm chill now. I'm relaxed. We're doing the monarchy of misfits. We're looking at First and Second Samuel and the stories of Saul and David. At the start of this series, we said Saul and David are complicated human beings. They're not just the good guy and the bad guy. They're a whole lot more nuanced in the roles that history has assigned them. And so these guys, when we look at their lives, is a lot more representative of each of us, probably on some weeks, than we would care to admit. And so let me catch you up. So we started with Samuel at the beginning of the story. It's a miraculous uh, pregnancy, and he comes, and he becomes a prophet. And as a prophet, the uh, Israelites begin to say, we want a king, we want a king. He says, no, you don't. They say, yes, we do. And God says, okay, give him a king. And they give them Saul, and you know, it's just this God's providence, miraculous, that they bring Saul uh, to the people as the king that God has chosen. And now in the story, Saul has been anointed. Now, I mentioned our community groups uh, at the start of the night tonight. Last week, you should have been meeting in those community groups. We do that one Saturday night a month instead of meeting here. And so in your community group, you discuss chapter 11, the chapter before the two that we're going to look at tonight. And it was interesting. I talked with a few of you this week, and I led the small group that met here. And we had a discussion on the, on the chapter and, you know, picked it apart a little bit and came to some conclusions. And then I talked to a few of the other groups, and they came to different conclusions. And I'm like, that's actually really cool that, that we get to see and work through God's word with wisdom and patience and coming up with these different conclusions and answers and trying to figure it out in community together. Now, again, one of our small groups, they're called the pre-empty nesters. They say they're not even going to get rid of that name. They're going to let it sit. They decided to go to Universal Studios tonight, and so I told them. They were all here mostly Wednesday night. I told them they're all dead to me at this point. <laughs> to their face, not behind their back. But I thought about it this week. If you think back to the story in chapter 11, when Saul wanted to kind of motivate his people, what did he do? He cut up an oxen and mailed it out to the people. So I thought maybe this week, you guys be aware what might show up in your mailboxes. I'm going to start tonight with a question. It's a pretty important question. Do you trust God? Like that's the most basic, simple question, right? But our answer is probably the most complicated thing we'll have to ever answer in our lives. See, we know in theory that God can be trusted. Here's why. I'm going to give you just a little theology prep course here tonight. God is holy. That means he's set apart. He's perfect. That means that God is holy, that he can't sin. And if God can't sin... That means he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, that means he can't lie to me. And so God has made promises throughout Scripture. He's promised to be good. He's promised to love me. He's promised to protect me. And his holiness holds him to those promises. He cannot break those promises. And so the conclusion is, in my head, yeah, man, I should trust that God. I should trust him always. I should trust him in everything. But we are sinners. We know that. I displayed that earlier. We know, though, as sinners, sometimes we lie. Sometimes we can't be trusted. And so that knowledge of who we are complicates then our trust of other human beings. And most of all, it complicates our trust in God. And so I appreciate all of you tonight. You've, we've been each week giving you homework, a couple of chapters to read. This week it was chapters 12 and 13. 
as best I can tell, dang near everybody is reading along, and I think that is awesome. I met with the youth group on Wednesday night. I'll talk about a little bit. They read the chapter as well, and we got to discuss it. So it's a beautiful thing when the church reads and dives into God's Word together. So thank you. Tonight we're going to go through chapter 13, pretty much verse by verse together. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, and I start at the beginning in verse 1. It says this, Saul was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned for 42 years. Now, in Scripture, and a lot of the, uh, the texts in the Old Testament, they always give a formal recognition of the king. So this is kind of a formality in the story. Like, this is the formal recognition, standard process of Saul's reign. Verse 2, it says, Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. The story jumps around a lot if you're reading through 1 Samuel, and it's kind of hard to tell where we're at in Israel's history, but they're in this ongoing battle with Philistia, and so that is their current nemesis. It's their arch enemies of Israel, and so that's where we're at in the story. They're still fighting with uh, the Philistines and trying to figure out, and they're actually occupied a lot by the Philistines, and so they're this country occupied by another group of people, and they're trying to fight back a little bit, and it says, uh, the next verse, he says, he took two thousand of the chosen man with him to Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. The other thousand went with Saul's son, Jonathan, first time we've heard a mention of him, to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. And the reason I mentioned that that's the first time, I mean, it's like, who's this Jonathan guy? Saul was like, you know, living with his dad. He becomes king. He's taking care of his donkeys. He's all humble. And all of a sudden now Jonathan shows up in the story. What's happened? Probably what's happened is 20 plus years have passed. I mean, Jonathan is not going to be leading a regiment in the army unless he's at least, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. So, it's a pretty good ways into Saul's reign. He's been anointed, and now he's reigning as king, and it's 20 years that have passed. The story we looked at last week was back at the beginning of his reign. If you remember, he had this great victory, and it was a great start to that reign. It's like, we got our king, and he's on fire, and he's, he's taking over people, and he's doing great, and the people have all this enthusiasm, and they have this gratitude to God for what their king has done, and, and there's just this feeling Maybe our future is going to be a whole lot better than our past. But a couple decades have passed. We know this because of Jonathan's age, and things are not going all that great for Israel. They got their king, even though they already had a king. They got their earthly king, but it hasn't quite produced the dramatic results that they were expecting. And so verse 3, it says, Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of Philistines at Geba. Geba uh, is this little place that originally belonged to Israel. Um, they are attacking it because it is lost land. So they are trying to recover this lost land. It says, The news spread quickly among the Philistines. We've been attacked. So Saul blew the ram's horn. He blew a trumpet basically throughout the land saying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up, and revolt. This is a call to a war of independence. It's the Israeli revolution, if you will. The Philistines inhabit their land. They rule over the people. They're making life miserable. And Saul is going to use this one victory here kind of as a springboard then to motivate his people now to rise up and start a revolution. Now, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. I told you this story. They kind of are chopped up a little weird, and it's hard to read through it. This whole chapter, it's like you start with some background information, you end with some more background information, and you get the meat of the story in the middle. It's like a Bible sandwich that we got going on here. So I'm going to jump to the end of this story, and then we're going to come back a little bit. So we'll jump ahead to verse 19. 
It says, there were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them for fear they would make swords and spears for the Hebrews. So what the writer is doing here is trying to paint a picture of just how much the odds are stacked against Israel. The Philistines have got a pretty good strategy. They are depriving the Hebrews of their ability to build an arsenal, to put together weapons. And so verse 20, it says, uh, So whenever the Israelites needed to sharpen their plowshares, their picks, their axes, or sickles, these are our farming implements now, they had to also take them to a Philistine blacksmith. The charges were as follows, and they give us some numbers that may mean nothing to us. A quarter ounce of silver for sharpening a plowshare or pick, an eighth of ounce for sharpening an axe sickle or axe goad. We don't know what that means, but it just means it costs a lot of money. It was really expensive, way more than it should have cost. And so what it is is this brilliant strategy by the Philistines. They not only are outlawing blacksmiths so that the Israelites cannot make weapons to fight back against them and defend themselves, but they say also if you need to sharpen your tools to do your work and to feed your family, uh, we own all the places that do that, and we're going to charge you whatever we want. We'll price gouge you on this sharpening implements. And so it's a great strategy. So verse 22 says, so on the day of the battle, what this all means, this big battle that's coming up, none of the people of Israel had a sword or a spear except for Saul and Jonathan. That's not a great way to start and go into a battle. So that's a little backstory and insight into the current affairs of Israel. So let's now get into the, the middle part of the sandwich, the meat. Verse 4, it says, all Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba. Who did we just learn destroyed that? It, it was Jonathan, right? Son, but all of a sudden it's Saul here. I don't know who twisted that story. but it's, it, Or maybe it's, you know, if a leader wins, even though the people underneath him wins, the leader gets credit and everybody else loses. I don't know. But somehow now it's changed to Saul. And it says, and that Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. They already hated them, but now they hate them more than ever. I encourage you, when you read scripture, especially if you don't have a lot of it to read or you're studying it, read some of the other translations. I told our group last week, the New Living Translation is a great phrase-by-phrase translation. So when I'm teaching a story like this, I like to look at the phrase translations. But there's also translations that do a better word-for-word translation, meaning they take the actual words and do their best to translate it into our modern English. The ESV does a really good job of that, and this one especially so. The ESV translation of that last line says, All of Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. A stench. So when Israel was passive and they weren't fighting back and they're like, oh, the enemy's here. I guess there's nothing we can do. Well, then the enemy didn't worry about them a whole lot because, you know, they're not doing anything. So if we take that, they might have smelled a little bad, but they didn't have a stench. They might have smelled. I asked a youth group, I said, what's something to you that smells bad that maybe nobody else thinks smells bad? And I got things like coffee. Well, it's, I don't know what's wrong with these kids. Coconut. One of the kids, coconut, they said it smells like suntan lotion. I'm like, yeah, but you know, it smells like pina coladas too. It's just whatever. So uh, and then it says, but as soon as they go on this attack, they become a stench. We're attacking you, now you're a stench. So now all of a sudden they smell like ketchup when they're coming at, (laughs) that is the nastiest smell. Or or dead fish or a dead body, I don't know, whatever is a stench to you. So when they're passive, they don't smell all that bad. When they attack, all of a sudden they become a stench. And so my question to you, have you become a stench to your enemy? 
Before you kind of put that enemy in your head, let's define what an enemy actually is. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 does a good job of that. He says, uh, Paul writing, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Demonic, satanic forces. That's what we're truly fighting against. And so, as we go through life, we should ask ourselves, Am I living in such a way for Christ that I have become a stench to those dark forces? And the way you can tell is if your life is all rainbow and sunshine, you probably smell a little too good. And if you're feeling tonight beat up, beat around, then you stanky to those demons. And so we've all experienced this in life, I think. I think we kind of know how this goes, whether we realize it or not. There's, there's a sin in our life, and we just kind of allow it to be there. It's like, okay, I'm not really fighting it. It's just, it's just there. And Satan's like, oh, that's smelling pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm not going to worry about that. But then you're like, you know what? Convicted. I, I need to deal with this sin. I need to get myself out of this trap. And Satan, all of a sudden, he's like, hmm, uh, what's that smell? Brian's trying to allow the Holy Spirit to transform his life. And all of a sudden, now, we become a target. Once we try to fight, once we begin to push back against evil, once we try to claim that independence that Christ has given us, Satan gets a big whiff of our stench. And so then we need to be prepared for battle. Verse 4 says, so because they stanketh to the Philistines, the entire Israelite army now was summoned to join Saul in Gilgal. Then we turn a little bit here and it says, meanwhile, the Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. I don't know what that means, but it's just meant to tell us it's an overwhelming number. More than than you could imagine. And so Israel is outmanned. They are outgunned because they don't have any gun. And if this was Vegas, they'd have them at a thousand to one or greater odds. And so when I thought of this story this week, man, I immediately go to Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians, verse 4. Paul says, and he's talking about just Christians, us in general. He says, we are pressed on every side by our troubles, but we do not, or we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. I posted to Facebook this week, victory or winning in life isn't always, always a sign that God is with you. Listening to a podcast right now, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. It's a huge church that was in Seattle, Washington from the late 90s to the, you know, 2012-13 era, and this church really grew by leaps and bounds, multiple campuses and locations, and it grew to 30,000 members, which is phenomenal. Reformed church, actually pretty good theology, um, thousands of baptism. I mean, they had baptism events, and there would be six, 700 people coming to Christ, uh, a lot of men coming to Christ, which is sometimes hard in a church to, to get men through the doors of the church, and so they were you know, they were winning, and it was victory. But their pastor was verbally, mentally, and spiritually abusive for years and years. They had a good leadership structure, and the leaders all knew this, but they'd say, I know, I know, I know, but look at the fruit. Look at the victory. Look at how we're winning for God. 
podcast that I was listening to this week talking about this, they actually compared it <laughs> close to my heart to IU basketball. They said when Bob Knight was there, Indiana, he's a jerk, right? Indiana was winning, so we'll just turn our eye. The, the means justify the ends. Or if we want to bring that more current, look at USA Gymnastics. They were winning, so let's not worry about the problem over here. Victory doesn't always mean that we're on the right path or that God is with us. And the real problem with thinking that God is with us because we're quote-unquote winning is it can lead us down this path of believing the ends justify the means. And that is certainly just not biblical. But more so, it can lead to allow us to believe that when we don't win, that when we fail, it means God is not with us. It means that God has abandoned us. And again, biblically, that couldn't be further from the truth. Losing by gaining underwrites the entirety of our faith. Christ lost to give us new life. We lose our lives to be united with Christ. And I know most mature Christians in this room will tell you that in your Christian walk, it's normally three steps forward and two steps back. We lose as much as we win, but then God uses our losses to grow us probably more than anything else, especially those victories. And so God is not always with us in the victories, and he never abandoned us in the losses. Verse 6, the men of Israel saw that what a tight spot they were in. And because they were hard-pressed, doesn't that sound like Paul? They were hard-pressed by the enemy. They tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. So Israel is hard-pressed on all sides. They're being hunted down by this enemy. The likely outcome is failure. It's losing. And what do they do? They run and they hide. So my question to you is, What's your cave? Where do you run and hide when that enemy is attacking? I talked to the youth group about this again as well. So they helped me come up with some of these. Um, reality is scary. And so where do we hide? We hide in this cistern that's called a cell phone. And we just keep going to the bottom, to the bottom, scrolling down, down, and never reaching the bottom while we continue to hide. Or maybe this person hurt me. Instead of confronting that person, who is kind of an enemy in that moment, we just run and hide from that person in this hole over here called gossip, and we talk about that person. Gossip's a really interesting one. It's, it's a cave, but gossip can also be our enemy when somebody is gossiping about us, and they choose to do that, and so they run and from us, and then the gossip comes back, and that becomes our enemy, and that's very a personal one for me this week, because I found out about some gossip going around, and you get used to that a little bit as a pastor, but this one kind of really hurt, and so I'm in a process right now of making that decision. Do I face that enemy head on? How do I do that humbly and not let the old Brian come out? And knowing that when I face that enemy, the most likely outcome is going to be failure, and it's going to be ugly, and it's going to be messy. Or do I just run and hide? I'm a conflict avoider, so that's my go-to, typically. What's your cave? Maybe it's substance abuse. It's drugs, it's alcohol, it's food, it's whatever. And in that, you got to say, what demons is it that you're running from to that substance? And many don't know until they go to therapy because they haven't stopped long enough running to that hole to look their enemy in the eyes. And some people even get sober and they just keep running to other caves because they, they're sober, but they haven't faced that enemy head on. Here's another, a religion. We make an enemy 
out of Jesus. We're like, that guy, he's telling us to like do this stuff, love your enemies and welcome everyone and surrender my life. I'll just hide over here in a thicket of religion. I'll just cover up with some rules and passing judgment. and I'll substitute busyness for an actual relationship with God or with others. Or maybe that cave is apathy. You're convicted. You see stuff that is wrong in the world. But instead of facing those enemies, you run to the hole of apathy, hiding in that miserable cave of comfort. What cave are you hiding in? What cave are you afraid to come out of? And you know what you do when you go into a cave? You isolate yourself. So where are you isolated? I don't know who needs to hear this tonight, but come out of that cave. Come out and fight. Even if the odds are a million to one against you, come out and fight because failure, God is still with you. God is still trusted. Verse 7, meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men were trembling with fear. So for our remaining time tonight, now I want to turn and I want to talk about Saul. And it's pretty good right here. He starts out by um, staying when everybody else is running away. I mean, that's pretty good of him. He's losing ground. He's losing ground to his enemies because they're coming in closer and closer. He's losing ground to his people because they're all running away. But Saul stayed. And so let's give credit where credit's due. Verse 8, Saul waited there for seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel did not come. Now, if you don't remember, it's like, okay, what did Samuel say? We got to go all the way back to chapter 10. Samuel, who is a prophet of God, a prophet of God speaks the word of God, gave these instructions. Verse 7, it says, after these signs take place, this is Samuel talking, it says, do what must be done for God is with you. I want to highlight that line there. It says, do what must be done. That's the instruction that Saul gets. So in other words, it's a license to take action. It's kind of some freedom and some liberty to do what must be done. It's how I manage my staff at my day job. I I give them a lot of freedom to run. I'm like, just do what needs to be done. And there's no judgment in that, even if you fall down and fail. So that's the first instruction that he gets. Verse 8, though, says, Then go down to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instruction. Now this thing gets kind of complicated. Because God told Saul via Samuel, God's word, do what must be done. God also told Saul, wait patiently for seven days. And so day one, Saul waits, and he waits, and he's like, he said seven days. It's bad around here, but I'm going to wait that seven days. Another day goes by, and the Philistines, they just keep growing, more chariots, more charioteers, more army members. Another day goes by, and his people are just deserting him one by one by one. Day four, his leadership is being questioned not only by the people, but by himself. Day five, he's like, God says I must do what must be done. Should should I act? We need to act now. He waits. Day six, one more day. God said to wait. I've made it six days. I'm going to make it seven days. Day seven, he's at the point of desperation. Samuel doesn't show up. Where's Samuel? What's going through his head? Is Samuel lost? Is Samuel dead? And so Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, it says. So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Question is, what would you have done? Would you have done 
what needed to be done, thinking maybe something happened? Or would you wait it, even though the seven days have expired, or depending on what commentary you read, have mostly expired? It's 11.55 p.m., and you got five more minutes. We don't know. But what would you have done? That's, again, a question I asked our youth who helped me write this sermon this week. I asked them that question on Wednesday night. It was a pretty mixed response. You know, it was a lot of arguing and debating and back and forth. Some said, you know, he's waited the allotted days, I think. And so uh, maybe he assumed this, maybe he assumed that. So he's, he's just seizing his divine moment. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. But here's the problem, and, and it takes a bit of study of Scripture to kind of get to this point, and it's why it's nice to stand on the shoulders of the giants who have come before us because they've worked through a lot of this stuff. Saul is an Israelite. He would know the law. And the law says, the law that was given by God says that sacrifices and offerings, they can only be made by a prophet or a priest. No one else. Period. And so up against the wall, Saul broke the law of God. We can call it impatience. We can call it superstition. We can call it he was just thinking he was helping God out. I don't know. But in that moment, Saul did not trust God. And you know what we call that? When, when you do not trust God, the, the word we use for that in church is sin. I mean, was this complicated? You bet. I mean, there's a lot going on. Samuel is a no-show. There's never been a king of Israel before. He's like, maybe it's prophet, priest, and the king can make this sacrifice. Maybe it's just the pressure that he's feeling politically and, and from the people around him. And it's 1155, and it's the seventh day. We're close enough. But the instruction from God, because Samuel spoke and he speaks God's word, the instruction from God was to wait. And so trusting God would have been to wait. Even though it looked like God didn't keep his promise, even though it looked like God wasn't going to show up, a holy God is not going to break his promise, and so you've got to just wait. Verse 10, it says, Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, doing his offering, okay, I'm about done, he looks up, right at that moment, Samuel arrived. And Saul goes out to meet him and welcome him, and I don't know if he's like nervous and shaking or, you know, he's just like, hey, I, hey, buddy, how you doing? But he, he doesn't get to really say anything. It says, Samuel says, what have you done? I mean, Saul has to be wanting to ask the question of Samuel. It's said, where have you been? But he doesn't get to ask that question. Before the words can come out of his mouth, Samuel asks that question, what have you done? It's a frequent question from God in the Bible. We go all the way back to the beginning in the garden. Adam and Eve he eats the fruit and Adam eats it and God comes back and he says, what have you done? Cain kills his brother Abel. God comes in and he says, what have you done? We go to the book of Judges and there's a guy Achan and he's stealing and he's hiding and he's lighting and he's doing all this bad stuff and the prophet comes and says, what have you done? Samuel cuts right to the chase. There's no greeting. There's no small talk. There's no discussion of how the battle's going or all the pressure. It's simply, what have you done? And the correct answer that Saul should have given was, oh, I sinned. Forgive me. But Saul doesn't do that. He just justifies his actions. Let's continue. He says, this is the justification. I saw my men scattering from me. 
and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready to battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal and haven't even asked for the Lord's help yet. So I felt compelled, love that he uses that word, to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Last week, again, in chapter 10, if you remember that story, it said that Saul was compelled, doesn't use that word, but it says it was compelled to cut up his oxen and FedEx those out to his people to get them to come in and fight. It's a very weird tactic, and we fully acknowledge that. This is, you know, 3,000 years ago. It's a different place, different time, but that's, the, that's what he was compelled to do, but not by his own wisdom, not by his own understanding. It's very clear. It says he was compelled by the Spirit. This week, his back's against the wall, Samuel doesn't show up, and so he does what any reasonable person would do. He says, I was compelled to do what God commanded us not to do because I had justified all the reasons why it was okay. It's what we do, right? Justify it. We can justify it all he wants, but Saul made a choice not to trust God. This past week, our youngest daughter, she's in the room tonight. I forgot you guys weren't going to be going to children's ministry. So, Emery, you get to hear a story about you. <laughs> this is part of your punishment. <laughs> she takes her lunch to school every day. That's how we do it in our family. But uh, my wife put $100 on her account uh, at the school so that, God forbid, she forgot her lunch. You know, she could buy school lunch that day, or they do have snacks and stuff in the lunch line, so she could get the occasional snack. Um, it's $100, and we told her right at the beginning of the year, that's what you get. It's for the entire school year. Very clear on our instructions, a month, not even a month, about three weeks into the school year, she spent all $100. Mind you, she took her lunch most days, and so we're like, Emery, what have you done? And what do we get from Emory at first? We get a lot of justification. Oh, man, I forgot my lunch a bunch of times. And, oh, I was still hungry. And I think our school made some accounting error, Dad. <laughs> she didn't say that, but it was, you know, to that effect. And she eventually fessed up and apologized. But the bottom line is she knew what we told her. She knew what she was doing was wrong, but she did it anyway, and then she attempted to justify those actions. And, you know, Emory's 10 years old, but whether you're 30 or 50 or 80, we all do that same thing every single day. God's law says, do not lie, and then we lie. God's like, what have you done? And we start to justify. I had to lie to make the deal work, man. This is a business deal. I had to, I had to make this work. I had to lie to save my reputation where I've been ruined. God's law says, do not commit adultery. God says, what have you done? We start to justify, do you know how hard it is to wait until marriage? I waited until we were really serious. That's far enough, right? Or our relationship was already on the rocks. What was I supposed to do, be unhappy? God's law says, do not steal. <laughs> Justin said this week, is it really stealing if my employer's rich and doesn't need those reams of paper? <laughs> Jesus says, which is every bit the law, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. We justify it's 2021. That's so antiquated. Who's my enemy anyway? God's law from start to finish speaks about generosity as Christians. 
God says, what have you done? Or better yet, why haven't you given a thing? And you justify, you say, well, I'm planning on it. As soon as I get my finances squared away, I'm going to give. I'm going to be generous. And we justify and use that same excuse year after year after year. We justify and say, my church doesn't spend their money well. Find a new church if that's the case. First of all, did you, didn't God says, well, did you give any money to charity? If you don't trust your church, then, then where are you being generous? Where are you, you giving to my kingdom? Where are you being a steward? And you say, nah, nah, I don't trust any of those people. They all waste so much money, God. I'm just going to hold on to it and spend it on me. We justify. We find ourselves in unpleasant situations, and we do what our human reason compels us to do, not what the Spirit compels us to do. And then we justify when we need to just ask for forgiveness and repent. And so for Saul and for us, the implications are of vast significance. Verse 13 Samuel says, how foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. There are consequences to not trusting God. And often the greatest consequence is losing out on the blessing that God had planned for you. So you have that affair and you justify Go on and you do it, and you lose out on that blessing of marriage that God had in store for you for the next 40 years and that beautiful family you were going to raise together. You don't trust God with your money, and so you lose out on that blessing of seeing God's glory extended by your giving. You don't get entrusted with more so you can be a steward of it. You hold on to that resentment. Instead of forgiving, as Scripture commands us, and you lose out on the blessing of peace, which really is no good. There's a commandment that says, you shall be my witnesses. And then we never share the gospel, and we justify it. I, I don't know enough. I can't preach the gospel. I can't share the gospel. And then we never experience the beautiful joy of getting to baptize somebody that God used us to bring to Christ. Verse 15, Samuel then left Gilgal, and he went on his way. But the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gabeah in the land of Benjamin. When Saul counted the men who were still with him, he found only 600 were left. So we're coming near the end of the chapter here. And at the beginning, you remember, it started out pretty strong. Saul was there, and he's preparing for battle, and he's putting together not just this huge army. He's got the special forces unit of 3,000 men. He's blowing the trumpet. He's calling for an uprising. But then he doesn't trust God, and then there are consequences. He's replaced as king, a big one. We're going to learn more about Jonathan in the coming weeks. He's a good dude, and Jonathan would have made a great king, but now he never gets that opportunity because of the consequences of Saul's decision. All that set aside, though, right now Saul is still the king. Saul hasn't been struck dead yet. He's still alive, which means he gets to continue to move forward. Yeah, he lost a tremendous blessing, but he lives another day to fight another fight, which means he gets to leave that situation behind, move forward, and have additional opportunities now to trust God. Will it be easy? Nope. He's got 600 men remaining for this battle. The odds are not good. Furthermore, he's always going to know what he had, from a blessing from God, and that God took away that blessing. And so it's not going to be easy. But he can still choose to turn, to repent, 
to trust God. Our choices to not trust God, they can rob us of blessings, certainly. And our sin can leave us in some really rough situations. But we are never without hope. We are never without the ability to start over. That's what New Testament teaches over and over, the prodigal son story. You know the story. He, he wastes all his money. He goes to Las Vegas. He ends up in slop or whatever. He's like, I can't go back home to dad. And finally, he's at rock bottom because of his choices to not trust his dad. And he goes back home, and the father welcomes him. He throws his robe on him, feeds him the fattest calf. We can always turn back and make different choices. Peter, you remember that story we talked about last year as the, as the cross is coming before Christ and Peter is asked, do you know this man? He's like, no, nah, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. He denies Christ. But when Jesus comes back, he gives Peter another chance to trust him. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And he says that three times. Peter gets a fresh start. Emery, I was disappointed in you when you spent that money. And there are consequences, and she knows those consequences. If she forgets her lunch, she got no money. Too bad, so sad. You don't get to eat that day. It's a consequence that we have for Emery. But she will never lose the rights of being my daughter. She will never lose my love for her. She might have lost the blessing of that $100 that now she doesn't have, but she will never lose that. And so we may lose a blessing from God that he had in store for us. And that's tough to bear sometimes. But we can never lose our identity nor his love as his sons and daughters. So as we come to a close here, as I read stories like this in the Old Testament, they are tough. And I read them. And, and I know there's some stuff tonight that, that folks will disagree because you read the story and you're like, well, I think this and I think that. That's fine because I'll probably preach it in three years and, you know, disagree with myself from now, you know, because it's a complicated story. But I read these stories, and as I do, I pound God with my questions. I'm like, man, that doesn't make sense, and why, why were you like this God in the Old Testament? That doesn't seem fair. Saul never even asked to be king in the first place, so why is he having to go through all of this? And then I go through my life, and that's generally how I am too, you know. God, explain to me this situation that I'm seeing right now. How is that fair? Why haven't you answered that prayer I've been submitting daily for the last month? Why are you putting me through this? Why are you putting my friend through this and making me have to watch them suffer? I ask a lot of questions to God, and I bet you do too. But I have to remember in all of my questions to God, he's got one for me too. What have you done for all the mistakes that I make? And if I'm honest, and if I can move past that self-justification and look at my heart, I have to answer the question, I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't trust you. And so I skipped one verse tonight I want to go back to. It was near the end of the story. It's verse 14. And it says, But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people. And we can read that two ways. In the most literal sense, we know it's pointing us forward to David, the next king, the one that, that we're told is a man after God's own heart. But another way we can read that, and it points us to another king, a future king, the king of kings, that will one day come, that has already been appointed since eternity past to be the leader of God's people. He's a king. That when a situation looked bleak in his life, he didn't waver. He stayed true to the mission. He's a king who trusted his father enough to ask him the question, God, is there another way? But then say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
He's a king where we can find our greatest victory and his greatest loss. He's a king that certainly can be trusted. And so the question again, what have you done? I think about that in my own life. I can't even articulate how many times I have failed. I'm not even sure I understand the depths of how far my heart is from being like the heart of God. But here's the promise from God that we need to hear that he will never break Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin, the consequences of not trusting God, is death. That's a hard promise to hear. But God gave an even better promise than that. He says, But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. All we have to do is trust that. And the other consequences is no more because Christ already took that consequence. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to end tonight with a time of communion. It just seemed fitting for the message tonight and for the scripture that we read. And it's interesting, in this story, Saul essentially performs this little religious ceremony. For, we don't know why or what he's thinking, so I don't want to think too much about that. But he does this religious ceremony thinking that somehow that's what he needs to do to earn God's favor. And that's not what that's about. This is about something else right now. This is about remembering God's promises to it. This is some stupid little religious ceremony. This is a time that we need to take seriously where we're going to remember God's promises. And so as we sing tonight, as you eat those emblems tonight, remember that he can be trusted because he's shown us through Christ Jesus, that he fought for us even into his death, that it's only by his grace that I can take my next breath, that we can stop trying to justify our mistake and own them and then allow God to change them into those beautiful things that we sang about tonight. And so in every moment, in every situation, in every trial, in every failure, no matter how hard that enemy is pressing in, Even when it appears God isn't going to show up ever, he will, he does, and his love will still be there. Won't you stand, eat the emblems as you feel led as we sing, and won't you sing with us? Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of worshiping together with each other because you don't know, maybe that person next to you tonight needed you to be there next to them just to feel that warmth and that spirit. And so we love you guys this week. Think about those caves that you might be hiding in and maybe peek your head outside. It's not as bad as you might think. And then answer that question, what have you done? A lot of it's not going to be good, but God will always love you and you could always trust him. God bless. Love you all. See you next week.